A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Open City's on-demand audio miniseries, A Tale of Two Cities. This is the first tour of a two-part series led by the architects and royal academician Eric Parry that will visit London's two historic cities, Westminster and the City of London. Eric Parry has built prolifically in both cities, and over the course of two tours, he will introduce his personal reflections on the unique character of each through a detailed explanation of the development of the designs for his buildings. This first tour focuses on the city of Westminster and will begin at 50 New Bond Street and 14 St George's Street, two contemporary office buildings surrounded by listed architecture. Our tour will visit key Eric Parry buildings, including 23 Savile Row, 1 Eagle Place, numbers 8 and 30 St James's Square and the Church of St Martin in the Fields, regarded as a masterpiece of the distinguished 18th century architect James Gibbs and one of the country's finest historic churches. The tour ends at the recently completed £5.5 million restoration of the Grade 2 star listed renovation of St John's Waterloo, where Eric Parry Architects has restored and revealed key elements of the historic interior of the church to create a high-quality space for arts and events within the building. There are nine listening points on this guide, the first of which is at 50 New Bond Street. If you lose your way, you can find each listening point in the episode description below and a full map where you found the Tale of Two Cities tour on the Open City website. Right now, you're standing outside the Eric Parry Architects-designed 50 New Bond Street, where you'll join Eric's tour. Uh, this project is about a, a slice of a block, a very historic and interesting block. Um, the, uh, the fact is that within the block, it is very quiet. So you can have opening windows, you have natural ventilation, and that's what we wanted to do. It's, uh, this was owned by Scottish Widows, an investment operation, and they, we'd done one project for them, which was a, a difficult one to get a planning permission for, um, over in Islington, and then they asked us to look at this. They first of all asked us to look at a wider version that included Armani. And um, actually what we're going to do, it's like an urban collage. So what we're going to do is we'll walk up Maddox Street to George Street um, because it encompasses all those three areas and the interior of the block. So the, the bit you see in the end, we, it, the site was constrained to um, the 18 metres of the frontage here. And this building, which is a listed building, um, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of very full in its decoration and interesting in terms of the use of, uh, of faience and granite. Um, you can see that it's, it's actually a, it's not a stone up there around the windows. It's a, it's a very popular material, faience, effectively baked earth. Um, uh, and it stood um, very proudly with the, the base was a shop called Pinay, which uh, sold very exotic shoes. As a kid, I, I remember, I, you know, I grew up uh, abroad, so kind of coming here when I you know, as a nipper, uh, once or twice, came down with my parents here, and New Bond Street somehow, um, you know, they, they didn't have, they weren't collectors, they, you know, they're very 
uh, ordinary in a way, but uh, that you know, coming down this street, uh, I was terribly aware of the artifice of these windows. I mean, what the windows in New Bond Street kind of contain is phenomenal. So it's like a, it's like a, a you know, an amazing um, visual feast of craftsmanship. So I was aware of that very early days. Now, actually, Pinay, um, my grandmother. Uh, who was Australian, Scottish, um, had tiny feet. And she'd lived in Liverpool. And so uh, she was given by my grandfather the shoes, that there were display shoes in Pinay in Liverpool, because they were the only ones that could fit her. So it's like, like a fantastic sort of sense of, you know, when, when you looked at the shoes and the extraordinary skins that were involved, it just sort of, it was, to me, it was kind of amazing to find this place. So how, how do you respond to it? So, I mean, actually, um, I've been working a bit in Fayence. So this is the original drawing when it was a wider frontage of bays. So it's ended up as, as a rhythm of three meter bays. And I wanted to use this material, which is faience, um, with a glaze that has, has a depth. It's hand glaze, so you can see it's viscous, so it's laid flat into the, into the kiln, so the, the top glaze kind of runs. So, yes, I think somebody said reptilian, actually, just I sort of heard, and that's exactly the essence of its reciprocity, as it were, with the, the old shoes. and. Um, the trick is, it, you know, you can use uh, faience in many ways. You can use it like um, extruded stuff, so you push it through a die, um, or you can cast it. These pieces are cast, and that allows you the beauty of the, the knee. Every inflection, or most of the inflections, you, you see are happening within the unit. And that tells, tells the truth about the material. It's not a rain screen, it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's a cast piece of substance. And that's the way I, I wanted to use it. And then the, uh, yeah, the, uh, the little Orioles are, you know, there's a, it's a sort of a sense of how you display, how you, how you engage with the street. So, you know, these are offices, simply. On this side, all the floors line through with Pinay, right? So there's a continuity, because that's part of the scheme. Um, and that sets the heights. Um, the, the office entrance is very tight uh, to maximize the display for the shop front. And uh, so you can see there's a kind of beam that has to go those, those almost 15 meters. It's 18 meters in total. Um, and that bottom, the oriel windows on the first floor are, are tighter, you'll see, in height. Um, and that's a virindal, that's a beam structurally that goes through there and allows you the big frontage. So you're maxing the frontage. So we're always responding to commercial pressure, you know, but max the frontage, please, minimize the office entrance. And that's, that's how that's garnered. And then I always, like it's nice with the sunlight today, you can see um, the finials actually mask another floor and then it dips off behind because obviously it's trying to make as much of it as you can. Pinay actually is quite a small part of this. All the way down here are very nice sort of Regency terraces, which were shops and, and residential originally, they've become offices. And then, um, as you get up here, we'll, I'll explain what happens on, on George Street, but it's a key Hanoverian fragment of this part of the world. You know, it's amazing, very early. Um, and then what we've done is to wind the offices back behind that, and this is into, you know, when you look at, uh, at Amani's, it goes back, it has a courtyard, so there's like an, there's a core of the, of the block, of the urban block, which is very quiet. So we've these are very these structurally are very thin, in order to maximise the width to make it commercially viable. But the good thing about Westminster planning is that uh, you know for for the uplift in in office area, you have to put back residential, or pay for residential off site. So actually, we just turned this street above shops, retail on the ground into 
apartments above. And it, work, it's, it works really interestingly. But the drama of this is completely lost, of course, on everyone. Um, in that uh, if you take the site as it was, you see the things completely cored out. Sorry. So what goes back, it's like a kind of, it's like a sort of strange surgery, you know, there's an anatomy to it. Um, so you're just walking around seeing the finished piece, but to make it work, you've got hardworking offices, residential shops, um, uh, that's part of the whole makeup. So actually, interestingly, there's a good, there's a very good architect who did the Time Life building, Paul Rosenauer. He had a building here, it had been very corrupted, you know, it mucked around with. I always remember going up into the building and finding a very aggressive Max Clifford in his office there. <laughs> yeah, so um, around the corner, you get these restored shop fronts, which are really charming. And then all of this is returned to, to, uh, to apartments uh, and sold. Um, Interestingly, in number 46, I was, it's what, amazing what you find out as you do these things. I'm not a historian, but, you know, just come across this stuff. Actually, prior, um, uh, very early part of the 20th century, Chapel Pianos had their manufactory here. So it's like a deep plan, you know, so that was part. But we also came across at number 46 uh, of this street, kind of fascinating little snippet, which was that the uh, Rolling Stones had their offices here, you know, so there's, there's a wonderful letter from, from Mick Jagger to Andy Warhol with, you know, this uh, Rolling Stones LTD, 46A Maddox Street. And it's, uh, it's, it's a classic actually, but uh, it, was, it was all about the artwork that Andy Warhol did. For, that is 21st of April, 1969. <laughs> you could, willing to, I won't read it now, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we, you can have a look at it a bit later on. Um, so we get to the next section. Stop two, Maddox Street. Walk south and turn left onto Maddox Street at the junction. Here you'll see another face of the project. So... <clears throat> We'll move across the street in a minute, but I just wanted to show you this. I think this is one of the great vistas. Maddox Street going down, you know, the Grosvenor Street ending up in the square at the end. It sort of dips and goes through. What was here was a 90, I guess 1970s building, but it came straight to the ground on the profile of, of this jetty. And it had staircases and toilets in it, and it was really bad in terms of getting that vista. Um, but the client didn't want to lose the area, so I proposed this, this, uh, this, this element that projects and then has a soffit because it's floating above the street to allow that projection, that view. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, one of my first commercial buildings was a building using glass blocks. Um, uh, and I kind of like the working aesthetic as opposed to the, the artifice of New Bond Street. So it's part of the same project, but it has to kind of uh, connect to this really important fabric of the Hanoverian period, which had, which had had a terrible fire. Um, kind of in the 70s, it, had, it would have been a, you know, grade two star listed building. Uh, whether that was, had anything to do with the construction that followed, I don't know. But, um, the, the, you know, this is, this is an amazing street. It's a wedge of, the, it's not uh, parallel and opens up to Hanover Square and is, you know, a post the accession of George I in whatever it was, 1714. This becomes part of the, the grid, the imposed grid. You know, you go across Regent Street and you get into the wonderful chaos of Soho. You come here and there was this, this business of squares and streets and order that was uh, part of the urban thinking. And I always like going to um, the square in Soho, um, the name of which will come back to me. 
Um, but there's this sort of sense of, um, as a, a, a Portuguese diplomat, who is uh, the Marquise de Pombal, who was here as an as a envoy for many years, watching this being built. And then you go to Lisbon and you see the Chado after its reconstruction following the earthquake there of 1755, and you can feel this resonance, this sort of Paris to London, you know, the, the low countries to London. Um, and then there is that sort of export, and you get this sort of amazing web out of this urban thinking that is part of this block. But we, if we just, I, I just want to, sh I, I think it, it would be worth everyone having a look. The other art commission with this um, that was run uh, by, uh, of modus operandi, uh, Vivian Lovell, was to select an artist to, do, to work this soffit. It's very beautiful. You should, we should, just before we cross the street, I think it's worth going just to the other side. Anthony Malinowski is the artist, who is somebody who uh, specializes in color. It's, it's at night, when it's lit, it kind of is an amazing inversion. It's all um, made out of Murano glass. So it's actually a silver gold uh, um, tessellation on the perimeter. And that kind of reflects for him the glass blocks, the order of the module. And then these are hand placed glass shards. He calls it a kind of river of color. And for me, this levitation here with this piece and it being above the, um, yeah, the street and that great vista is part of the, part of the uh, nice thinking of inversions. It came in about six pieces and then was, uh, so six sections that were put together on site, but it's all studio laid. It's a beautiful thing, I think. It's sort of easily passed by but very, very significant. And he's a, he's a great colorist and um, painter and sculptor. So. Stop three, 23 Savile Row. Cross St George's Street and continue down Maddox Street, taking a right opposite the Mason's Arms. Then cross over Conduit Street to join Savile Row. Walk down here a little way until you're stood opposite Hauser and Worth's Gallery in 23 Savile Row. Uh, just as we pass into uh, Savile Row, just to say this inflection is very beautiful, I think. It goes all the way down, obviously, to the Albany, has, we all know, been the heart of tailoring, kind of tailoring to the, the world around here, and um, has also had a kind of smattering of art galleries and so on. So um, it's, a, it's a sort of, with New Bond Street being, and Bond Street being one end of the spectrum, this is kind of, this is, this is to do with the body and it's kind of more, it's more in the process of making than the object being displayed. Um, just, I, I think it's, you'll see that there is the base, it's about a 1.8 meter fall across the site. Um, uh, you'll see the base in a dark stone. I'll come to describe that a bit more. There's a Portland stone above, and then there's this dancing sculpture by Joel Shapiro. And it's interesting because it was, it was the result of, of war damage. So um, there was a bomb, and it blew away a very intimate little connection, like going to the Albany at the other end if you're going to uh, the academy. So this... Uh, <laughs> This moment is, uh, is one that's a result of that bomb damage. It was the building, the, a building was built there post-war in the 50s, and it was the headquarters of a power company, national power company, um, called, and it had been taken over as English Heritage's headquarters. It's called Fortress House, and it looked like it actually. But then um, it's legal in general who owned it and, uh, and, and a developer called Stuart Lipton. Um, and so I was put in to go and see, get the permission to knock down Fortress House, which is a bit contentious. 
Um, it was a boring building, honestly, very hierarchical and didn't work in plan. So there were all those things. Now I think it would be much more difficult to get it down for good reason. You know, it was, it was a well-built stone building. For me, there are certain things that are really important. I was being squeezed like hell by the developers. Um, and so all the structure is contained within the skin. So it's a very, very clean plan. Um, it, it looks startlingly clean when you see it in plan. And that's, as I said, because it offers uh, to a, a, a very willing commercial world a very clean footprint. So um, through the two ownerships, um, as I say, I fought with, uh, with uh, the second owner in a way who wasn't sure about the Joel Shapiro. Um, they came to love it, I think, in the end. But um, it's the first piece that Joel made as a, um, a suspended piece of work. Sorry, Dirk. Oh, yeah. um, it's uh, and he, you know, it has this rather melancholic history because it was something that uh, uh, it was in his mind following the Twin Towers and falling bodies. So he has, it, I mean, that's an understated part of this, but um, it, it, there are these most beautiful um, pieces that are made originally in wood, put together and then cast, and then it's suspended off, I think, six wires, so it's a nice bit of engineering by Arabs, actually. But it's that thing of it bursting out of the facade in a choreographic way, which I think is kind of phenomenal. Stop four, the Albany. Follow Savile Row down and pause outside the rear entrance to the Albany, a private residential terrace which opens out to Piccadilly on the other side. Um, just a brief moment, um, but it's, you know, we've had New Bond Street, Savile Row with its wonderful section with the raised workshops that allow you to get, that allow light into the, the fabrication with the, the fitting rooms above and so on. It's a kind of wonderful um, street in that respect and specific. And then suddenly it ends here. I don't know if any of you have been into the Albany. It's a magical world. Um, so that you get this sort of uh, version of a muse, but very elegant with a canopy that runs through, takes up the length of the block that the Academy occupies. Um, obviously, the, the Academy wants a great townhouse. Then this building that was, uh, um, you know, was actually designed as, a, as an examination uh, building uh, for the universities um, that then uh, becomes, has become part of the, the Academy and creates the connection that David Chipfield has made very beautifully through that. That was a long process. I've been a member, you know, you don't, you get invited, so you wake up and get a letter, you know, and I had no idea, but for six, 16 years now, so 2006, and it's been, it's been a wonderful um, ride because it's, you know, to me, I've been at art school, I've been at architect school, but to be with artists and architects and printmakers and you know, sculptors, it's just a wonderful, insane institution that survives on its own guile, you know, because it gets no other funding. Anyway, so this one, we'll go down the, we won't go through because it's a bit, uh, a bit tortuous up and down. Let's go through the arcade and make our way to the other side. Stop five, one eagle place. After turning right at the Albany, walk down Burlington Arcade and you will emerge onto Piccadilly. Head left, and just before you get to Piccadilly Circus, on your right, you'll see Eric Parry's One Eagle Place. Okay, so here. Um, I, this is an incredibly interesting part of London, um, obviously. Piccadilly itself has sort of changed scale, as has, you know, the, the great divide the river, as it were, that John Nash created coming down from Regent's Park to Carlton House Terrace to separate out the old of Soho from the new that we've been looking at earlier. 
you know, has its, uh, has its meeting at Confluence, as it were, at Piccadilly Circus. So um, I was explaining that there's a lot of, given that Regent Street was created by and is the backbone of the Crown Estate, right? So it's owned by the Crown. A lot of these blocks here are owned by the Crown. And their leases come up every 100 years. So John Nash's really rather domestic Regent Street suddenly gets on steroids in the early 20th century and pumps up. There are amazing buildings by Norman Shaw. There's an architect called Reginald Blomfield um, who creates the scaling of the cornice on uh, the circus. Um, and, and so, yeah, you've got, you've got the early 20th century conspiracy of architects to create Piccadilly as a boulevard, a grand boulevard in London. Until then, it was, you know, palaces and drop scales. And so um, you can see Blomfield sort of crept around the corner and then there's a second building. And then there's this building and there's the building between. And actually what we're talking about here is like half an urban block again. So whereas New Bond Street is a linear, Maddox Street is a linear block, this is a, an entire block um, that the Crown wanted to readdress. It was a, sort of what one would uh, call a, a sort of, I called it a sort of a case of urban dental decay. It just had a center that didn't work, it had a periphery, but it was charming up to a point. So that's what it looked like. Sorry, um, I, I'll turn. <laughs> right, so, so you will see it's like, what, what you're looking at is actually the three buildings here. And if you look carefully at the corner building, you'll see barons on it. And the base of it had been kind of pulverized in the 60s. It's an outfitters. It's actually Sasha Baron Cohen's dad. <laughs> so that's just like one of those very interesting kind of asides, right? So that's, that's what you were looking at. It sort of dropped. There were two nondescript um, buildings and one fairly good building, actually. Um, and then uh, this is Waterhouse, a bank here, the NatWest, always been a bank. So um, a good building, goodish building goes back. And um, so the idea was to create a rhythm of retail, obviously, <coughs> at the ground, which you see at the ground of the building. Um, and then a rhythm of retail in German Street, which would reflect the scale of German Street, which is much more, um, much, much finer grain. So you get, a, you get the retail to activate. Eagle Place, to be honest, was really a pissoir. You know, it was nothing. It had nothing of interest on it. So um, the office entrance is now in the middle. So. The office entrance is at the middle, and the aim was to activate as much of this base as possible. And then we created offices above. And you'll see there's residential on German Street and a residential quarter of the, of the entire block on Lower Regent Street. But actually, the naughty thing here was to persuade the planners and that we would take this entire corner down put it back, put it back with the detail that it had um, and establish it then at another, at five foot higher in order that the floor levels would go through. So that's what's happening behind that. It's the old facade taken away stone by stone and put back and given a new lease of life. The material is great. Stone comes to, get to pieces like a jigsaw. So my idea here was to work with uh, polychromy and with ceramic again, but the ceramic to be played down, so it's, uh, it's simply a, like an off-white, and that the giant order reflects the Blomfield and the, you know, the early 20th century architects. You can see at the return, as it comes around, there's a double order. So I'm, I'm making the double order, I'm behaving with the cornice line, so I've raised the cornice line. Um, and there's an hi implied hierarchy within this of a piano nobile and so on, um, which actually isn't reflected in a double height behind, but you, that's what the, the ordering of the facade is. 
Again, it's not a rain screen. This is all cast material. So it's, um, it's, there is no movement. You have to make a very stiff structure to make that work in a way that the joints are, are lime mortared, so it's sealed. And then I always promised that at the planning stage that there would be an art commission. I wanted it. Um, and I set up a panel within the Crown Estate to take a shortlist of artists and their proposals through a competitive process. And at the end of that, Richard Deacon won the, um, the, the competition. Um, and uh, it, uh, yeah, so the, the process then began of, of, of his first idea, you know, was, uh, was something he'd been working on, which was to do with amalgamating different mixes of clays and cutting it. But they, they didn't, they wouldn't have survived the test of time. You couldn't have, I wanted it to be out of the same material as the body of the building. So we worked with his hand painted, I think there were about 30, there are 39 sections in a 25 meter length. And you can, you can have to imagine those are very big chunks of ceramic. They're up to 200 kilos, made by the firm that made Belfast sinks. So they're big stuff. And he purposely wanted, and he was working with the different sections and the different colorways. Now how we were going to translate the color onto the material was a very big deal. And we did that by going to the rump end of uh, the um, uh, crockery world in Stafford and finding a, a firm that did transfers. So if, uh, you, know, you know, it's like you, could, you put the ceramic onto, through a silk screening, onto a transfer, put it onto the ceramic, and then fire it so it's forever embedded. So that's the trick. And it's like this amazing bouquet, you know. So his view, I mean, for me, this was a, this was a facade that's meant to, re, it's north facing. It's meant to and does reflect the lights of Piccadilly Circus. It's a Piccadilly Circus building. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to have a stridency and a character. Um, and I think that he, you know, he, when, when he was thinking about this as a competition, he said Piccadilly Circus, he said that's, that is the evening standard shot of London, you know. To an artist, the number of people that sees your work is important, you know, and he, he's thinking, I think, you know, numbers. So it's a wonderful thing, you know, that he wanted to make this celebration um, in a world that actually, if you look up, you know, it's very active, the top of these buildings. You have urns, you have a lot of sculpture, you have a lot of stuff, you know. Um, and then we had a wonderful moment when we hired an open deck, double decker and picked up a lot of people and came and it was unveiled and this veiling, you know, something wonderful about the way that uh, artwork comes to life. Um, and it's an incredible important part of the commission. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, for me, you know, if Joel is free, free from the building, Antony Malinowski's kind of embedded. This is a triumph of, of the of the, of the dialogue between artist and architect, if you like, because the body is shared um, in, a, in a new venture because he hadn't done it before, you know. Stop six, eight St. James's Square. Walk down Eagle Place and follow German Street away from Piccadilly Circus, taking your first left down the Duke of York Street. Before you reach the park, pause next to Eric Parry's eight St. James's Square on your left. Right, so this is, uh, I think it's another great moment um, in, in London terms. Um, you've got the square, so the square, it was laid, it was a deal struck by uh, Henry German with the crown to acquire what was pasture land to make a square of 23 houses, each with 200 foot plots. So. From the square front, you have 200 foot back, and then you had mews, and the mews places were obviously for servicing and for horses, carriages, and so on. So that's, that's the bones of the structure of the square. Um, it was always a three-sided square. The south side that goes on to Pall Mall was, was a thinner section and, and rather different. 
but a new quarter had to have a church, so we got St. James, Piccadilly. It's fantastic, wonderful scale of opening, you know, you imagine in, in that wall as a sort of conclusion to this spine running north-south. It's a very symmetrical square. And this corner was, there was a 1939 building on the, on the corner, which was really out of scale. Um, uh, and what we did to make this commercially viable uh, was actually, sorry, I should say, for, what we did was lower the, the building on the front from the 39. Um, less floors, a, a kind of reflection of Chatham House, which is on the other side, which has this dark brick. So it's returning the sort of that sem semblance of a, a front, a frontage, and then a street and a mews. There was a very thin restaurant called Wheeler's here, so many of you might remember that. So that was contentious to get rid of. And w this was a site that included the next building. This is number eight, St. James Square. The next building is by Lutchens, and it was designed in the early part of, I think, 1911 for the Farrer brothers, who are the royal lawyers. Fantastic building, very flush. Yeah, the fenestration um, drawn intentionally as a sort of resonance historically with Queen Anne uh, period uh, buildings to the front. And it had at the back a muse. And the muse building was where uh, Lutchins got a deal with the Farrers that he could use the muse building because he, he needed the space. And it was there that he laid out New Delhi and made the Queen's Doll's House. And they had to pull away the muse frontage to get the doll's house out to take wherever you know and so there's this kind of wonderful resonance and we were dealing with both sections in the first instance it was owned by a pension fund um, and they sold it to a Greek developer I think um, called Kolakis who uh, we'd got a planning permission for the pension fund um, then he threw us off the job, but he and himself ended up in jail. And the um, portfolio was bought by a group called Green Property, who brought us back on. And they said, could we change... So I, by taking down the massing on, 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 the, on the square, I put more on the back. But, but actually, to relieve the mass of the building, created this loggia at the base. Um, and to assuage, but also respond to the muse, created this piece at the back that reflected something of the kind of jettisoning of Indian architecture, perhaps. And working again with Stephen Cox, who I've known for a very long time and learned a lot about stone from, we created this piece. He made this piece called Body Emerging. Um, again, a lot of persuasion needed to persuade the client, so this is... It's an amazing piece of Indian fieldstone and also the balusters on which you get this celebration of Luchin's presence rather than a blue plaque. I put in a reflective membrane in the glass so that it picks up the sky, which it does very nicely, and took the, the glazing back. It's kind of interesting to see it. That was the intention. Um, there's some nice detailing around here. The, the idea with the, the jettisoning piece is that it it reflects in a kind of slightly lyrical way their bronze canes with hand-blown glass, the world of St. St. James's Piccadilly. So there's just that kind of resonance. These are solid pieces of, of granite with stainless steel pins that, uh, that drive them into the, into the, hold them in place. So um, they're, they're wonderful pieces of stone. So the stone, if it's polished, is jet black, almost. And you could see that's what I've picked up. This is the same stone. It's picked, and then it's honed, and then it's polished, more polished on the sills. I love these kind of robust sills. And even the grills are in granite, right? So you've got this sort of sense of stone. The entire building actually is, is, could be conceived of as an essay on, on how to place a window in a wall. There was a plant room on top 
to service the building. And they said, look, could we, could we put more in the basement of the plants? I said, sure. So it was a digger deep, uh, dig deep uh, below. And that top bit of space, which is quite constrained in terms of its ceiling height, reached a world record um, you know, letting price of 185 pounds a square foot. So I always remember that as a you know, lesson. Sort of, sort of uh, it's kind of completely insane. But um, so if you look down... Stop seven, Pall Mall. Cross St James's Square and join Pall Mall. Then walk along the Mall in the direction of Trafalgar Square. This is the great vista that ends in St Martin in the Fields and I'll explain something about Nash's kind of urban thinking with that. Um, but just to say St Martin Fields where we're going next, uh, you know, in its Tudor guise as a church, it was the, the royal uh, church, so, but, but to, it was distant enough to deal with plague victims without disturbing the palaces of Whitehall, so it was suitable in the fields, right? So, um, so we've heard a bit about the kind of, you know, the urban development of this bit. Um, and obviously the clubs here are, are part of what was Carlton House Terrace. So Regent Street used to come down and end in Carlton House Terrace, where there was the Prince Regent's um, Palace. Uh, hence you get the, uh, the configuration of these buildings on, on the bones of that before the palace moves to Buckingham Palace, I guess. Right. Anyway, this is the, the vista. Stop eight, St Martin in the Fields. When you reach Trafalgar Square, cross over to get a view of St Martin in the Fields. This is the plot. That's St Martin in the Fields. You see, it's got a beautiful inflection. When it was first built, with the lane, St Martin's Lane, it was completely embedded in red tiled fabric, medieval fabric, and it had the, uh, had the Royal Muse. That then was proposed to be the National Gallery. There was going to be a building in the centre of this for the Royal Academy. There was a statue of George III and George IV on either side because they didn't like each other apparently, so they're separated. There was, there was a pub and so on on that corner. That becomes South Africa House, and therefore the church becomes the centre of the anti-apartheid movement, which it was very much part of, etc. But what Nash had figured out was that that great vista that we just enjoyed coming down was going to be made by making the square. So, you know, that's, that's what we have. And the burial ground that was variously around this gets moved. So you can see the urban complexity that they dealt with. There are lots of notes about you know, ownership transferring to pieces. The idea that Nash had, sorry, that the church is James Gibbs, 1721 to 24. You cannot imagine the audacity and the scale of this building in that surrounding fabric. So it's an amazing church. Um, Nash, who has a, a history of landscape architecture or design, urban thinking, uses that inflection, opens it up, creates a range to the north, which you can just see through there, which is basically a vicarage. It's a parish centre in the middle, and there was a schools building. So in that range, there are, and then he makes the transfer of, he makes around the church, um, vaults, which were um, burial vaults. They didn't last very well or very long. So in a way, um, I should start in the church because there's a reordering of the church interior, which is very important, and a reconnecting. But we'll actually go through to the public way. As I say, this is there are several vicars living on site. Sam Wells is the senior vicar. So, um, so this is meeting rooms on the ground, the vicarage above, and below that is part of a continuous basement that is to do with the homeless centre at St Martin's. And one of the things that we did was to rationalise a site which meant a social 
uh, community rationalization as well because there were like eight kitchens on the site. There were two groups dealing with the homeless, so they amalgamated to become the connection at St. Martin's. Um, the, we obviously, they, the vaults were still there, the Nash's vaults were still there. They, they stopped being a burial place 30 or 40 years after they were actually made um, because they were, they were leaking, there was you know, dreadful hygiene problems. Um, but they, they, you know, it was a chaos down below. So uh, we took away this whole territory in the middle um, to, and I think there's, uh, there's a couple of good images to help you. So you opened up everything here, you yeah. opened the street. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what it was. We'll see it from the back. But it was like a ship in dry dock. So the whole, this is from the, the, west, uh, the east end. But this whole territory is taken out, the basement's created. And then the question is, um, you know, how you would then create an entrance for all that below? Because there was no accessible entrance, for instance. And um, the, uh, in my mind, this started actually as a kind of square sculptural piece and moved to something that was probably better being but it, you will notice in plan, it's, it's actually not a circle. Because a circle like baptistries, like, you know, is a sacred, complete piece. It's, it's a secular entrance. So I, I, I did that. So it's two circles that in, interconnect and there's a kind of halo of light. And you take that with you downstairs. We'll go downstairs because that's very much part of it. Um, and then the, this is a positive. There is a negative, which is a light well, that actually gives air to all the lower spaces and light and gives a new perspective to the spire. So I call it the third perspective. Um, and having the strength of that diagram, which is uh, a repeating element, meant that however much I was challenged for the square footage, I could keep the space. The scale of the space. There was a sort of. There's a imp, it's one of those things you need to defend yourself with as an architect. That, that site, with the archaeology here and on the other side, through the history of the church back another 300 years, Anglo-Saxon period, and the Romans. So there were. There's a, there's a sarcophagus from literally 410 when the legions are leaving. Um, that was all discovered in this bit area here that hadn't been disturbed by Nash. But I mean, you would have been coming to a concert and there was a very, you know, it was a very problematic relationship between the connection and people using the site, the green rooms for musicians, there was no rehearsal space. We weren't trying to sanitize it in any way, um, but what we did do was to create connections so this is the pavilion. You go down two levels. You have a church hall. You have the light well. You have a music rehearsal space. You have the kitchens out of the crypt. Um, and uh, the other way, you then get the, um, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, you get the section, the wonderful church. Um, uh, the crypt below, so there's this very nice relationship of music here, liturgy, um, you know, and music here and grouping. Then our new spaces, the pavilion, and then into, not least, the lower level for the connection. There's a doctor's surgery down there, there's kitchen down there, it's well organized, and most importantly, there's a laundrette place to get washed uh, at this lower level um, with the Nash building. So. I found myself working between Gibbs, north-facing wall here, shadow, Nash, kind of painted world. What was the architecture to be here? And um, basically, this is a, a granite base. Um, th this is a structural glass surround holding this heavy uh, stainless steel top. Um, of the pavilion and the geometry that I just described.
Yeah, one of the um, difficult commissions to get through was Shirazes. She won an art, uh, an art competition for the East Window. And um, there were objections, not least to the uh, newly appointed king. This is, you know, the Queen Mother, as was, former Queen's mother, was the patron of St. Martin the Fields. It is a, the royal church as well as various others. There's a very strong link to that. And I well remember having to go down to St. James's Palace and, you know, the vicar and Sir Nicholas Goodison, who chaired the, the art panel, um, had to go down to defend this window very strongly. And, and, and Nicholas Goodison, you know, stamped his foot. It is the most loved bit of public art in, in London. You know, it is phenomenal. So beautiful. It was a, it was a dusty old interior. Was, the only thing that had been lost during the war was the glass. So it was this grim studio glass. Um, and and it was it was so in need of refurbishment the whole place. But um, this is the crown, you know, sort of crowning pieces. You come in. It's a most beautiful uh, bit of artwork. It doesn't have to be protected. It's all digitally. It, it's her markings, Shirazé's markings, that are translated. In so if a piece gets cracked, indeed, this was a playground. There was there were a couple of pieces. A week later there'll be a new piece of glass um, or something like that. You know, it's replaceable and therefore it's possible to have this lovely thin veil between inside and outside. Stop nine, St John's Church, Waterloo. To get to the final stop on this tour, you have to cross the Thames. You can do this by taking Craven Street down to the Golden Jubilee Bridges. On the south side of the river, past the Royal Festival Hall, then the IMAX, and then you will reach St John's Church, Waterloo. This building was, uh, this church was built as one of the Waterloo churches, so um, 1820s, um, and it was built in, within a, a pretty impoverished district, so um, it was also a huge container, it's a massive nave, so I think it was probably, you know, a congregation would have fitted of nearly you know, certainly a thousand and a half. It had galleries, it was, you know, very, very, very muscular building. It's got a lovely little park around it and the vicarage on the far side. But it was bombed during the war and lost its roof. And uh, the fabric of the walls intact and the, the, sp the spire um, and so on. So. It, it happens to be on the, basically on the, kind of virtually on the site of the uh, Festival of Britain in 1951. So it gets assigned as the festival church. So um, there's a makeover um, of, by an architect called Thomas Ford, uh, who did a lot of work in London in, in, at that point in terms of restoration or renovation of, of damaged churches. But one has to think of this area around here as a series of teeth and infrastructure, but actually massively desolate. It's post-industrial site, heavily bombed, grey, and so what Thomas Ford did was to close the church interior from the exterior, um, because the exterior was as grim as, as could be. So what we've done, actually, in a way, is to, to, to reverse that, to open that back up. With Obviously, you've got the IMAX, you've got other projects coming on, a lot more people here. You've got the South Bank. You've got everything to communicate with. So the church calls itself the bridge. And um, ah, Giles, hello. Um, and magically, um, our client, Giles Goddard, <laughs> has, still has still smiling. Well, actually, if I think that, you know, St. Martin in the Fields is about seven years in the making, this was 12. And it's been a, a difficult rite of passage, I would say. But, um, it, you know, um, I, should, I should really hand over, I should give you the microphone, Giles. But, I'm, um, but basically, I was just explaining that what we've done is to open this connection back to the exterior, very importantly. And because the church had lost its galleries, um, 
you know, it's 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 a very a, a very uh, massive hall, effectively, um, and it had it had accumulated a kind of um, a patina of almost nicotine colored cream walls and so on. Um, and I think that it was Giles who said that it took him you know, 30% of his effort to get beyond the space to start communicating and preaching. So that was, that was the brief, actually, in a way. We've, we've, re, uh, we've opened up the crypt, so we'll be able to get the, down there. I think there's a service uh, inside, so, so we can't go into the nave, but Giles did say we could go up to the gallery. Um, and there is a foyer that we've created that's part of the connectivity. So we go into the foyer, then we'll go up to the gallery, um, and then um, and then be able to go to the crypt. So I think it may be possible. I think maybe if you go to the crypt first. Oh, okay. Because I think we've nearly finished. So we. We are, we are actually under the, uh, the portico here. So um, this is, in, in, you know, is a project that's big in ambition, but you know, uh, very, very uh, uh, constrained by costs. It's fine. Um, it was to transform the, the church really into a sustainable um, space framework for the community. Um, and down here, um, this was completely unused, so we've created this, uh, having to waterproof the top, of course, um, so that was part of the enabling works. Behind us are still burial vaults running out that way. Um, and so this is a gallery and uh, a space that Giles Goddard talks about being put back into use for things from performance to poetry, reading, to it's got a nice acoustic to it at a smaller scale. Um, and then we have the, the next spine, um, you know, this really wonderful vaulting, which is, has been sort of exposed and cleaned, so you get that in the next space as well. So we just run through here rapidly. Um, uh, the lift that you saw above at the entrance foyer delivers you to this point as well, um, so that this floor is accessible. Um, there's actually been a lot done in terms of environmental uh, improvements. So there's a whole bank of uh, photoelectric uh, cell panels on the roof to help to deliver energy and a very efficient uh, heat recovery system that's been put in place for all these spaces. There are lots of users um, here from music at one end of the spectrum to um, meeting rooms that can be hired out. Uh, they may be locked, nope. So actually, just very, very usable meeting space. There's a whole sequence of them running down through, through the back, all with natural light um, and, uh, and openable windows. So, you know, that's a very important part of this. Um, and, uh, it's a good resonant space for, for rehearsals. So that's this, this one. Um, so if, uh, you know, it's made the whole crypt lettable, usable, and, um, and a, a source of very important revenue. Um, so yeah, that's, that's down here. Um, so we, we'll, uh, we'll just get on our way and go up to the gallery. Yeah, right, so I can just say a few words. The, um, I suppose one of the wonderful discoveries in this process, well, first of all, the acoustics are good, but the whole of that ceiling is lined acoustically to make that work, so it's, uh, it's very carefully calibrated. We work a lot with 
one particular acoustician. Um, uh, so Gilleron Scott, Paul Gilleron, wonderful um, man. Um, so, but actually on this axis, you will have noticed on the east wall, rather than a window, a mural. And it's uh, Thomas Ford who did the reworking for um, the church in 51. Um, was working with a, uh, an artist called Hans Freibusch. So he was a refugee who came from Germany, Jewish, in 33. Um, and uh, he ended up doing a huge number of, um, of, of, of uh, mural work and actually some sculptural work for the Church of England. Kind of um, given his patronage of, uh, I think it's Bishop Bell of, uh, of Chichester, Pallant House fame, so it's that background of art. It's actually, it's a remarkably, he came out of uh, Munich and, and France, so it's kind of somewhere with German expressionism, it's an amazing palette. It was completely grimy and it was flaking, so there was a conservation project for it. Um, that actually his grandson helped to um, put up the money for, um, by selling some of his work um, and it's, I think it's a magnificent crucifixion when you look at it and then below it is another piece of his. Um, so you, you actually have this very significant uh, piece of, of art, um, the, two, the two, two paintings by, by Freibusch and um, uh, they form a, a great axial kind of uh, moment in the church. All the glazing has been re, it's reglazed, so you get that crystal light through it. The the uh, tonality has some some sort of rather grim paintings were on either side of it, which we we took away. But um, you you get a sense of where it was, I think, when you when you see this image. Um, so none of the pigments really there. Um, the, the, the galleries had, had got blown away, as I said, and these two boxes had been kind of placed at the east end rather uncomfortably, I felt. So there are a series of screens that you will have seen that are much more to do with being on this level than the gallery level, but mediate between the, the scale of the whole and the scale of this. So there are open screens that run through here, and then, and then there are screens that house storage because you can take all the chairs away. I think last night they had a huge Kaylee in there, you know, and sort of it just is able to take on many guises, um, which it couldn't before. So, you know, anyway, um, a, a, a really, a really um, a wonderful project to work on with the community here. And that's the conclusion. We could have gone the other way to Covent Garden and looked at the terrace, the opera terrace and so forth. But um, no, thank you. That's uh, for your, your patience and uh, have a great, have a great, uh, have a great remains of the weekend. So it's wonderful. Good to spend your time. Thank you for listening. From Open City and the on-demand audio team, goodbye. Here's St John's Church Choir to sing you out.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.